It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From the Fox News Podcast Network, I'm Dana Perino, and everything will be okay. Welcome back to another episode of Everything Will Be Okay. This week, I'm joined by my friend and Fox News colleague, whose work ethic and endurance in and out of the wrestling ring go unmatched. Tyrus is a man of many titles, from father to professional wrestler to podcast host to panelist on Gutfeld. And now he's adding best-selling author to his championship belt. In his memoir, Just Tyrus, he gives us a raw, honest, and heartfelt glimpse into his life. There's a lot of fun in this book. There's a lot of heart and life in this book. I absolutely loved it. I read it in one day. I can't recommend it highly enough. He shares that even in the midst of joy, heartbreak, and unexpected detours and disappointments, he's still Just Tyrus. And Tyrus is pretty great. Tyrus, Tyrus, you're joining the Everything Will Be Okay podcast. I'm excited to have you. I'm excited to be here and just a scotch nervous. I'm on. Uh, Why are you nervous? It's Dana Perino. Like, what's the most nervous event you've ever done? Like, what, what's the most nervous you've ever been? Oh, that's such a good question. What is the most nervous thing I've ever done? Oh, man. I'll tell you mine. Uh, probably my first uh, wrestling match where I was walking out. In spandex in front of thousands of people, I uh, <laughs> that would do it for me too. I was I was pretty. It, it like all day was like I'm fine, I'm fine, and then like, oh uh, boy, like my heart was pounding, and like I was thinking about running the other direction. It was crazy. So mine, oh my gosh, I think I might have been wearing this exact dress. I did uh, for charity. I did Celebrity Jeopardy. Oh, you're and this smart, was though. like. 2011, 2012, and it was in Washington, D.C. Now, remember, at that point, I had been the White House press secretary. I had answered questions in front of the world. I had done... The most nervous I have ever been in my life is doing Jeopardy. I sweated through the dress. I was standing on a box that was like... Probably like a four or five inch box, and I was in four inch heels. And I was standing next to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Oh wow! Yeah, he's but, tall. So not tall. there was a, that intimidation, but also just just to have your intellect and your knowledge on full display or lack thereof on full display for everyone to see. I I just that was bad for me. But you killed it. No, I I was leading going into the first commercial break, and then I fell apart in the second half. Yeah, it happens. Uh, but that's the most nervous tough. I've ever yeah, been. I was. Uh, I, Dusty Rose rest his soul didn't help me. Like he was literally like uh, the Funkasaurus character. Uh, was not in my wheelhouse. Like I was not a dancer. I never danced when I was in the even in the clubs. I, when I was a bouncer, I was I nodded my head. And um, <laughs> I had been trained to be this killer. You know, for a year and a half, I was getting ready. I wrote this whole thing, and it was called the House of Pain, and had these matches on superstars, and people were terrified of me. And I was doing my thing that I was trained to do, and I was. Um, then I made a joke in the locker room, and uh, Vince McMahon just happened to be walking by, and I heard his his very distinctive laugh. He's got that ha ha. It's like a chuckle. It's, okay. 
it's not evil, but if there was ever an evil laugh, it would it would be in the running. And I thought, oh, all right, I made the old man laugh. And uh, Triple H, who was spearheading my uh, TV debut and stuff, my re-re de- debut, uh, came up to me one day with like a his face was as white as a ghost, and he was like, "Hey," I was like, "Hey," because we're getting ready to debut next week, and uh, he's like. Did you make a joke or something in front of the boss? I said, I'm not in front of him. I think he walked by. I said, why? He goes, well, he thinks you're a pretty funny guy. I said, yeah, a lot of guys do in the locker room. It's just, you know, right. locker room stuff. He's like, oh, he thinks you're a really funny guy. I was like, well, how funny? He's like, coming out to the ring, dancing funny. And I was like, oh. how, what does dancing have to do with funny? And he was like, he likes to dance. It makes him laugh. You made him laugh, so he assumes you like to dance. And I was like, can, what can we do? And he's like, I don't know. Give me some time. So, and I was like, "Oh no!" I was having a heart attack. Like, "Oh no!" What is? What's, and I and I said, "Can I go to Dusty Rhodes, who was uh, my mentor and like uh, he was like a father figure for me?" And I went down in there, and I was like, "What do I do? What do I do?" He's trying to make me dance, and he was like, "Well, baby, you're being uh, punished for my sins." And I was like, "Okay, well, what do you need to do? I do not want to dance." <laughs> and uh, he says, "Well, you're gonna have to learn to dance. Cause if the boss wants you to dance, you got to dance." And uh, I was like. Having a hyper, you think you sweat? I was covered. <laughs> and this is just me and Dusty Rhodes alone in an arena. And I'm like, I'm not doing this. I don't, I'm don't. i not dancing. That's not who I am. And he was like, well, so who are you going to have to in be? In spandex? It would eventually be. But on that day, I was not wearing spandex in my personal time. And um, although I'm sure they're comfortable, but it's just not my thing. I know wrestlers in the 80s used to wear yep. cowboy boots and spandex. Again, just not my not cup of thing. tea. So, uh he said, uh, give me your hand. And I said, for what? And he's like, we're going to dance. And he had the sound guy hit the lights, and he turned on moves like Jagger. <laughs> and I was really getting upset. Like, I was the closest I was ever to punching somebody I cared deeply for. And he made me dance with him. And it was like... 45 minutes because I fought it with everything I had. And the only thing was like Morgan Freeman coming over. Like, I wish I could say Tyrus fought the good fight, but eventually you just, anybody who laughs and is that much fun in what he does, you end up, so I ended up dancing with him. Uh, it took so long at the time, my, uh, my son and, uh, his uncle had came to pick me up at the thing. And then my son and them were just standing there. And they come from a strong wrestling tradition family, you know, like they break wood with their hands and uh, I'm dancing. So and then it just happened. And the next thing I know, they're like, you're debuting and you're going to come out as heavy. Oh, was it heavy D was the name they wanted me to come out to. And Dana, I was I was hyperventilating in the corner. Like, think, think of something. Think you got to get out of this. You got to get out of this. There's 20,000 people and you're going to come out as heavy D like heavy G just died. Like you don't. Oh no, Heavy D just died. I was going to be Heavy G. That's how traumatic this was. I'm like, I'm not doing this. I'm not doing this. Plus, I'm dieting. This isn't fair. And uh, <laughs> the announcer walked up to me, and they never, just for some reason, said, hey, uh, what am I calling you tonight? And I just was like, Funkasaurus. And he was like, what? That was approved? Yeah. I'm, I'm from uh, Planet Funk. I'm the Funkasaurus. <laughs> and he was like... All right. All right. <laughs> so he went out there and he did it. That wasn't so bad. And I went out and did the thing. But I mean, my heart. Well, this is, I'm glad you told the story because I wanted to have you on the podcast to talk about your book, Just Tyrus. And I do talk about it in my book. That story yeah. is in the book. Uh, I was honored to read an early copy of the book before it was even in print. I got the electronic copy in January. It was a weekend. Um, I read it in a day. I couldn't put it down. I loved it. I kept sending you messages. 
that this line's great. Oh, this is so good. Oh, wow. I can't believe this happened. Oh my gosh, your book is so good. And I finished it and I have been raving about it ever since. And I encourage anyone who listens to this podcast or sees Tyrus on any of his multiple shows or listen to his podcast. You, you think you know Tyrus and then you read this book and it is so moving and honest and action-packed. It is funny. It is also astounding to look back, to know you now as a successful guy and to be able to go back and understand all the things that you went through to get you to this point. And I also know you as a dad um, and a little Georgie uh, who she kind of likes me, I think. Yeah, um, just a scotch. <laughs> just a scotch. Um, I, you know, you were on before and we talked about what it's like, like to raise daughters in, in this time and how you can raise them with confidence and to have the grace and dignity uh, and the belief that they can do anything that they want to do. But let's go back to the the beginning. Um, I don't know how far back I want to go and you don't have to give away the whole story, but a couple of things stuck out to me. Um, one is your leaving of Massachusetts. And another one, I thought there's this, the scene of being on your bike in California with the sacks catching snakes. Yeah. I think that that's an interesting trajectory for me to like where you went and then when, where you were very vulnerable and it's very vulnerable situation to a place of love to then being uprooted again, but yet figuring out a way to survive and to be considered a leader that somebody that people could turn to and like, wow, that guy's cool. That guy's big. That guy's smart. That guy's brave. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, um, thank you so much for the the kind words, and it's very humbling, and it's hard not to get emotional. Uh, I really appreciate. Uh, you know, you. Uh, excuse me. I'm sorry. It's all right. You know, everyone has a story. You know, when you tell you when you tell yours, you think, uh, you know, you don't think it. Never, you you sometimes don't think that your life has as much meaning as you would like it to be. And one of the scary things about it is when you put it on paper and yeah. you present it to people, uh, it exposes you. And then when someone validates you, especially someone like you, who I respect so much, um. Some of my own weaknesses stand out because not having those kind of people in my life, there was never an attaboy or a good Mm -hmm. job. It was just, they had other stuff going on. That was just survival for you. So, as I get myself together here, um, being in that, and I hate calling it a foster home because it wasn't, it was the only home I really ever knew. So... Uh, and they were so protective of of me. Like it changed my life. Like that that part of my life was probably the most critical because I was going the wrong way really fast. Remind everyone how old you were. Uh, I was when I went to them. I think I was uh, I think it was five and a half. I was okay, like, and you had a little five. brother. And a little brother. Yeah, mm-hmm. he was two years younger than me, so he didn't really. He still hadn't. He was always kind of protected. You know, like I did a really good job and. Of and my mother did a good job, but he just was too little to kind of see everything that was going on. He obviously knew that stuff wasn't right, you know, with the screaming and crying a lot. But mm-hmm. uh, he was just younger. So when he went, 
it was a lot easier for him to transition, you know, and it was very difficult for me. And they went through hell with me. I was not, I was not a lovable kid. I was a violent kid. I was aggressive and I was smart. And that is not a good combination. So, <laughs> And you got bored easily. Very easily. Mm-hmm. And things like timeouts didn't work with someone like me. When you put a child like me in timeout, that was me to marinate and figure out what I could do next time not to get caught. So timeouts meant nothing to That's me. That's like my sister, Angie. Um, my mom would send her to her room and she'd say, good, I love my room. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't even say that. I would just glare at you as I walked to my room and plotted. <laughs> and recently I did that to my daughter and she gave me that look and I said, I know, I know that, that look. <laughs> but um, they, and then one day becomes like normal and the nightmares go away and the bedwetting stops and you become a family, you know, and like you're, I was playing hockey and mm-hmm. um, I went to, with, um, with my foster dad, I would go to his barbershop on the weekends, and I was his guy, you know, and it was just, I had this bond, and then, you know, just life has a way of changing, and it's just... Because your mom gets in touch and says, I'm ready, Yeah, and she I graduated from nursing school. Mm-hmm. She, um, we were separated, and she went to school, and she got her, her stuff together, her life together, and she had an opportunity to go start over, and she chose to bring us back. Mm-hmm. And so then we made the we went from there to a very different world in California, like a very conservative household. Um, everyone had a role, had a job. We didn't you didn't cuss at the dinner table. It was structured. You were a suit and tie to church like they were extremely structured and very loving home. Uh, my mother's home. I'm not saying she wasn't loving. It just was different. So um, they just I could tell they were upset. I could tell. They were hurting, uh, but they were just so strong about being parents, and their issues didn't matter. Like, their hearts were broken, but they wouldn't let me see it. I could mm-hmm. sense it, but I knew that they were saying, I'm just going to visit my mom for a little while and see how it goes. But I had, by that point in you my knew. life. You knew. Like, in I, the book, you write yeah. that you're like, you know that this is it. Yeah, I knew it was it. They always, mm. uh, phone calls. It was always like, oh, well, call me, we'll stay in touch. And by that time, that was my fir- third, probably, call me, we'll stay in touch kind of thing. So I got really hip to it. So it was a huge shock coming to California. and um, But it, I adjusted. That's the one thing I always had to do. I had yes. to adjust and figure things out. Uh, there wasn't going to be a bedtime. My mother worked nights. She had roommates. You know, they're young. She was young. They liked to party and do what young people think about, you know. And that was very different for me. So I kind of had to be the adult. Mm-hmm. We'll be right back with more of this interview after this. The Will Kane Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox and Friends weekend host Will Kane as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Tell the story that, about um, getting the snakes. Because so, you always loved animals from a small, from a, when you were a young age, you loved animals. Yeah, like one of the things was, if it was very brief... Uh, I didn't talk a lot. Some things in the books I, I left out just because it was just it would have been way too many pages. But uh, one positive experience with my uh, quickly with my uh, biological father's side of the family is that my grandfather was a horse rancher. He raised horses and cows. So I spent a lot of time on the farm and uh, there was nothing that I wasn't going to climb, crawl. And he had this Morgan stallion that nobody went around because he was. Super aggressive, and he was a stud. So mm-hmm. he was that was his job. I escaped at, f- at like three and went into his stall and 
basically climbed all over him, pulled his tail, pulled his everything you could imagine to be pulled on a horse. <laughs> I pulled it, uh, crawled up on his mane, had his, had my thumb in his ear, like driving him absolutely nuts, but he didn't touch me. So I was uh-huh. completely harmless. Uh-huh. And I had to be checked every day I came in the house for some critter either stuffed in a diaper or my, I used to wear overalls all the time. I was a farmer. I didn't wear a t-shirt, just overalls. I was a tough guy. I was a tough kid. And uh, we'd have a frog or something stuck. If you ever seen (laughs) Old Yellow, the uh, Kurt Russell's little character, that was me. Something was always there. So when I got to California and I was given a bike and they had this place called The Wash, you could just ride anywhere in California. You could just take off and we called it The Wash. And it was like mountains and a river and the river would dry up in the summertime. So you'd just be down there and there was... Every kind of snake you could imagine. And we were the snake wranglers, not really original, but that's what we came up with, was me and like five other kids. And we would spend, we would get up at nine in the morning, have a sack lunch, hop on our bikes, and we were gone. And we our only rule was be back by sundown. And uh, one occasion, we had, we had caught a lot, we had enough gopher snakes and kink snakes to probably start our own snake store. But on one particular occasion, and uh, I actually got a whooping for this, but I left that part out. Um, <laughs> In California, we have uh, palm trees everywhere. Yeah. And when they fall, they lay flat and they're like things like to hide under them all the time. So we flipped them over to try to catch snakes and lizards and rats and mice to feed our snakes. So we flip it over and lo and behold, curled up in a perfect ball is this baby rattlesnake. <gasps> yeah, that's what everyone else said but me. And I was like, oh, we got to catch it. So I ran as fast as I could, hopped on my bike, rode to my house. My mom was sleeping because she worked nights. Took her best pair of salad prongs, <laughs> hopped out, rode back, and everyone was still standing there. And they were like, "How has he moved?" He was like, "No, he hasn't moved." I took a pair of salad prongs. These are the old, mm-hmm. old school ones. Clamped it on his little head, picked him up, put him in a bag, tied it in knots, put it on my bike, and rid home like I was the king. I just conquered the world and put it in a glass aquarium in my bedroom. Where so that story, I liked it for several reasons. I just felt like it was a metaphor for other things that were going to happen in your life. So uh, sort of against all odds, as people read the book, you'll see that Tyrus, um, after a fashion, uh, because of one of his mom's uh, boyfriends, I guess, uh, even then husband, I guess, yeah, he eventually but got married, he, yeah. um, uh, Tyrus in high school is staying on friends couches. Yeah. And I I was very touched by something you say in the book where you talk about um, you re- started to recognize the look from the parents or the sort of the, the some of the words about like, OK, I got to go find another place. Yeah. You then get to college and there's a scene there before we talk about your other professional pursuits. Um, and then I don't want to just be specific about the book because there's some lessons in here that I think everybody that listened to this particular podcast will will like to learn and part of it is dealing with peer pressure and then dealing with disappointment so on the peer pressure front i remember a a story in the book um you're in college a lot of people doing drugs or dealing drugs and you're uncomfortable and how did you get yourself out of that situation how if people are in a you can tell the story but i'm trying to think about people that end up just sucked into a bad situation or maybe they run with the wrong crowd or they make one bad decision and they don't know how to get out of it. But you did. I think without the short of it is it really comes down to who you identify with. And I identified with men I saw on TV. 
and my hero was this little guy, uh, David Banner, who would turn into Lou Ferrigno when his problems arose. But he was what they call a reluctant hero, and he always kind of did the right thing. And I was a lot, I watched a lot of TV, and it was always the guys who kind of seemed to do the right thing, and that kind of stuck with me. And I also grew up seeing the results of what drugs do to you and what type of people come around with, come around with drugs and stuff like that. So it never, I always was better than them in my mind, uh, especially uh, with my stepdad. He did drugs and stuff, so I was always better than him yeah. because I didn't. And then here I am doing it. And I never did any hardcore drugs, uh, but I was selling them. Mm-hmm. And it, I think the the thing that really makes you is when there comes a moment when you're in the moment and you're seeing all the benefits of doing what you're doing. And then there's going to come a time when someone's going to show you a mirror and you're not going to like what you see. And you either become something new or you make a change. And for me, being called a drug dealer was just like being called the N-word to me mm-hmm. because of all the negative stuff I saw it. And when it hit me that that's what I was and that's what I was doing, no matter how I tried to clean it up or make it cool or, or like I'm doing it for books and all this, you put all kinds of bells and whistles on what you're doing. And when I really realized that's what I was doing, I just stopped. I was like, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm out. Cause I don't want, this is not what I want to be. And, um, it took, just being being real with yourself because we love we love to trick ourselves into like justifying everything we do. It's not my fault, and my, I always have my out. You know, I always say, "Well, it's because I'm black and this that, and I have to do this because the man's holding us down." And that's that's what a golden ticket for excuses. And for me, I just wanted to be more. I didn't want to be that. You, uh, that's another thing in the book that I think. There's so many funny parts too. I mean. You got up to some things. Yeah. And um, I also, the other thing I talk about in my book and that I wondered if you could explain here is how, how to best bounce back from disappointment and to build that resiliency. Because over and over again in this book, you have these opportunities and then they are yanked away from you or yeah. you did something that caused them to go away. And that was both on the football field, at the wrestling place, and then also even with Snoop. Yep. And so over and over again, you're learning that lesson. What would you advise people on that? I I think you have to listen to yourself. If you're honest with yourself when something goes wrong and you don't play the noise, you don't play, you don't listen to the excuses, you know, because a lot of times your friends will say things to you that's not helping you, especially if they're, uh, I call them wingmen. Mm. They're just there to tell you like, hey, I mean, one of my best friends who I love to death uh, a girl called me fat at the club one night when I was in college, and it was a 320-pound lineman, so it wasn't completely <laughs> unruh. And he's like, oh, it's just baby fat. And I said, bro, I'm 23 years old. That type of advice doesn't help you. And I, I, that's where the and you make jokes like that, but when it comes to life with real decisions and you surround your pe- yourself with people like that and you don't take responsibility for what you've done, like every time I got fired in every situation or let go or cut, if I was being real with myself, I knew why. It was something that I did or an excuse that I gave them. So I talk about the best advice ever. It's it's not what happens to you. It's your reaction that you're judged by. And my reactions to myself were always honest. Yeah. I never lied to myself. Like, that's the one thing. And what do you think thing. that comes from? 
Like, how do you? Um, I mean, I guess all of us do know deep down, you know, the truth. Right. But you in the book, I feel like over and over again, you see that you're like, well, that was dumb. And I have to face the consequences. For a long time, I was all I had. Yeah. So I was my own best friend when it came Mm -hmm. to me. Like, I knew what I had to do. When you are the protector, when you're the one who's in charge of your brother and your mother and making sure you're safe, the one person you have to count on is yourself. I woke up without alarm clocks for school because I knew that I had to get, I wake up five minutes before I was supposed to. I still do it to this day. Me too. Because I know that I'm not going to have an alarm clock cost me my opportunity. So I rely on myself. And I think when you look at whatever the situation is, whenever you get punched in the mouth, as soon as you start saying, look what they made me do or they they did it because of this and that, you're only spending more time laying down. It's interesting. My friend um, Ingrid had some great advice for me last year. I was going through uh, one particular thing, making a change in my life, and I told her that I felt like I was on a high wire without a net. And she said, but you are the net. Exactly. And I'm like, oh, I guess, oh, I'm I'm almost 50. (laughs) I just just realized what she meant by that. And it really made me think like, oh, you're right. I guess I have been doing it. I've been paying my bills and getting to work on time and having a successful relationship with with my husband and keeping my family together. I'm like, yeah, I am the net. And, and you are so the true. net. Yeah, you have to be. When you rely on other people, even the best, even the person who loves you the most is going to disappoint you because at the end of the day, they have to take care of themselves too. And, and I love you as a father. Like, so you are, you are the dependable one, right? That's the one now. Is that a role that you love? I love it, but it was, it was hard. Um, I'm the first one to admit that I did not start out father of the year. Right. Not even a little bit. I I tried to run from it. I, I tried to deny it. I was not ready for the responsibility. I was um, paranoid because I didn't have, I had no idea how to be a father. And I had no reference. And it wasn't until I actually was like holding my children and looking at them and I just realized that like I all they need is me to be me. I don't I can't I can't be anything else but me and it's good enough because they smile and laugh when you pick them up. Mm-hmm. When you know when you they don't care if you're not the world champ. They don't care if you are in between greatness chases or whatever. They just want you there. Yep, they don't care and you're on TV. No, my daughter, my my sons, my daughters do not care. It's like, hey, come watch this movie. Uh, matter of fact, Georgie this weekend wanted to watch one of my movies, mm-hmm. and we, I said, okay, you pick it out, and she picked the Beast in the uh, Water. I die in that movie in a fight scene. Oh, and, yeah, spoiler alert. <laughs> and I kept trying to tell her, you know, it's a movie, it's an action movie, and, you know, we do this, this, that, whatever. And I said, and, and explained to her how everything happened, and then when I got shot. Mm-mm. My daughter was just boo-hooing, yeah. and I was. And she was just like, "Did you did you live, Dad?" And I was like, "I, I think, yeah, I'm sitting right here with you, kid." But I was like, "Yeah, actually, I didn't die all the way. <laughs> like, I, I'm in the sequel. There's not, I doubt, there's not going to be a sequel." I said, "But yeah, I, I was still yeah. breathing. They just yeah. didn't know." Uh-huh. And she was like, "Okay, because I don't. You yeah. realize how important you are to them, and I'm not 
and I'm proud to say I'm not my kids' friends. You know, I'm not even a little bit. Like I'm, I wanted to be their friends in the beginning, and but that's poor parenting. So mm-hmm. I had to learn as I went. But I love the challenge. Did Snoop have a chance to look at your book yet? Um, yeah, I sent it to him. Uh, the two people I sent it to was you, and I sent it to Snoop and his manager Kevin. And I said, Kevin, you probably have to read it to him, like making jokes and stuff. But um, I underestimated uh, him because he reads everything. Mm-hmm. And uh, when he wrote, sent the blurb, like again, if you even if you don't want to read one page of the book, I would argue that I have the greatest blurb in blurbs in the history. Of, of books. I don't even think Shakespeare could top this one. <laughs> I have Dana Perino and Snoop Dogg on the same page. I mean, that. You and have, tell everyone what Snoop said about that. Uh, he just. Didn't he say, that's so you? Yeah, he said that's 100%. His, yeah. he, he messaged me and he was like, Dana Perino, man, that is you. Like, only you <laughs> would bring the hood and the White House together. And uh, I said, she's tougher than you think, boss. She's tougher oh, well, than you think. You know, I love good books. Um, I love great stories. I love you. I love working with you. Um, and what a great friendship. You know that, that we have, and, and your Fox has provided both of us a lot of opportunities. That yeah. we, neither of us started out here. No. And you know, um, and Greg, I like the story that you tell about the, the, your first sort of encounters with Greg when he. I think you had had you on one night, and then yep. he said, "Why don't you come and be here?" He's got an eye for talent, and obviously you're successful in lots of different areas: movies, wrestling, um, now uh, writing, and parenting, but. Um, Tell us a little bit about your experience here at Fox and um, what you think of that. So, uh, Gutfield and I, we started off like it was just, it was weird. Uh, I, he messaged me, he sent, he liked something on Twitter and I, I made a joke at somebody. I think it was dealing with some kind of troll and I said something piffy, they would say. And uh, he was like, that was pretty funny. I was like, oh, thanks, man. I appreciate it. And I was like, hey, aren't you the guy from Red Eye or something like that? And he was like, yeah, hey, I got a new show. Got Phil show. Would you like to come on as a guest sometime? And I was like, yeah, right. Fox News and me, whatever, yo. Like, not happening. And uh, he was like, no, seriously. And I was like, okay, obviously this is some weird guy trying to get a wrestler on a show to like try to make fun of us or make it look stupid because unfortunately that's what happens a lot of times when wrestlers are kind of looked down upon. And I was like, he didn't pick the wrong one. So, uh, but he asked me to his, he asked me to come out. I did the show and, uh, Arroyo Grande, I think was my first topic about her stealing donuts with her boyfriend. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I I well, you know, right. sugar tooth, a lot like crack, man. You just can't, you know, sometimes yeah. you got to go for it. And, uh, during the commercial break, he was like, that was pretty funny. I would, I would love to, if you were here in New York, I'd, I'd have you as a co-host. And I'm like, well, I don't live in New York, you know, and I'm, I'm always, if you so funny my, when I first got the opportunity to be on the five. I said, but I don't live in New York. Yeah. <laughs> so it's weird the way yeah. that, that you say that. And then I called Peter to tell him about the five. And he goes, oh, congratulations. I was like, what are you talking about? He goes, this is what you always wanted. This is what you always wanted to do. And it takes sometimes somebody else to tell you that. Yeah. And Greg go, kept oh. telling me this is what I was like on, I was like dealing with logistics in my head. Yeah. I just didn't think, uh, I didn't see how it was going to work. And Gutfeld just would not. Yeah. He's like, okay, tell you what. Then I did, he's like, how about once a month? And I said, once a month I can do. It doesn't hurt because I got to work. I work. I travel. I wrestle on the weekends and stuff with TNA and stuff. I'm always on the. I'm trying to. I'm auditioning. You know, because mm-hmm. I'm going to be a star. And uh, it just turned into. But how about every two weeks? You know, and I was like, all right. And then the then the police segment happened, and 
that was tough for me because I didn't know really what I had been on both sides of the fence and I wasn't really Which sure. Police? It was a. Uh, I think it was in actually I think it was in Louisiana it was the Sterling situation uh, yeah. and yeah. there was a rash of like videos at, you know yep. between cops and and suspects and stuff and uh Gutfeld asked me about it and he was you know he said cuz you get your rundown or whatever and I was mm-hmm. like man I don't know if I want to talk about this because I got street cred and I got my own stuff and I've been on the wrong side of it and the right side of it I have friends that are that are cops and there's you know there's a couple of police that I wish I could see them in, in a small room sometimes so I was just kind of like back and forth on it but Greg's like just be yourself man I'm not asking you to say anything which is something mm-hmm. that Fox does not get enough credit for one of the things that really bothered me about the recently Jen Psaki had made that comment about our very own dear sweet Peter Ducey about how like Fox writes questions for you uh, no, never. No, it, it, you bring what you're going to bring, and it's not always agreeable. I don't always agree with Greg. I'm I'm my own lane, yeah. but um, and I ended up at some point during the conversation. I just said, uh, comply. It's about compliance, and resisting arrest doesn't make you Rosa Parks. It makes you a criminal. And it went viral, but the statement was profound, and I showed both sides of it. And that's pretty much what, at that point, Greg was like, "You have to do this." He's like, I don't know what, like wrestling, your wrestling career is great and all that. And you could probably still do that. He goes, but you have a voice here and you need to. So Gutfeld, I mean, I'm not saying he convinced me, but like he was one, his voice was always like, you need to, to do he this. He was right. You know, this isn't, you, you aren't just a quote, pretty face. He goes, you have something yeah. to go. And I was just thinking. Did he, did he call you a pretty face? Yeah, you know, I'm going to give him hell you know, tonight he, when you, I see you him. You know he's creepy. He says, <laughs> you see on the show, he always says little things where I go, why would I walk into that? Well, the book is called Just Tyrus. It is so good. Thank you. It's a great length. Um, I, I honestly, if you pick, if you have a flight, you, you'll finish it in a day or two um, because you won't be able to put it down. It's an amazing story. Did you read the audio book yourself? I'm yeah, I'm doing the audiobook myself yes. because they wanted another guy to do it, but he was like, I can't talk like right, him. Right. So you have to do it yourself. So I if, if you maybe if you have a commute, you know, get the audiobook because it makes such a difference with when it's your own personal story yeah. for you to to do that. My last question for you is, um, do you believe that everything will be okay? Oh, 100%. Yeah. And I take offense sometimes because your book does say to young ladies, but I read said book (laughs) and I read it to my daughter. And what I did, the I did, I love this so much. I did a video for you and I didn't think that it was like, it was, it was a ladies book. And I'm like, everything will be okay, guy. You know, and then I realized that I was like, not, and I said, listen, I'm not a, a daughter or a little sister, but I'm a parent but of daughters. It really is great uh, feedback about it because like Trey Gowdy said that as a dad, as he said one that he learned a lot. Uh, there's a lot of mentoring advice in there. He's like, I learned a lot for, for yeah, himself. But he thing. said as a dad and as a manager, as a, as a husband of a wife, she's had an amazing teaching career that it was, it was good for them as well. Because the one thing I don't want people to do, and I can see this, what you're doing with Georgie is there's so many young women who are American and educated and loved by their parents. And they're just racked with anxiety and yeah, oh, they're afraid yeah. to take a risk, whether in their personal life or, um, in at work they're in too much of a hurry and you could you can worry your young life away and i just don't want that for people no and what, one of the things i do and i and i only exasperated after uh your book was that i play the bad guy 
with Georgie. Like uh, this weekend, she was like, Dad, I'm going to do 10 cartwheels in a row. Oh, you're just a little girl. There's no way you can do that. I'm sorry. Please sit down. You're going to hurt yourself. Fine. I'll do 15. Oh, <laughs> let me get a bag of ice. And then she'll do 15 and 16 and 17. Uh, and she'll be like, now what? Well, like, she's sorry. thriving. Yes. And so. you're, a, you're a wonderful father. You, um, it's, it's amazing all that you have achieved at, you know, at, even at, at, at I'm going to say relatively young age. Yeah, okay. Uh, because sure. you've got a lot ahead of you, um, but to know where you started in life yeah, and where you are now, you are in- an incredible human, and I'm proud to know you. Thank you so much. All right. Really thanks, Tyrus. Make sure you subscribe to this series wherever you download podcasts and leave a rating and review. I'm Dana Perino. Everything will be okay. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Listen to Fox News Podcast shows ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or follow wherever you get your podcasts.